Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two women who will soon graduate from their respective international affairs and global communications programs. But nonetheless, believe that they are the most qualified people you could ever find to present you with a cross-cutting look on the latest trending global matters. Each month, a different student host will bring you a new expert to unpack the hashtags you see in your news feeds. Inspired? Curious? Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. We're literally always on our phones, perusing for new content, so we will absolutely reply. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Lucas Miller. On April 2nd, protesters successfully forced an end to long-serving Algerian President Abdulaziz Bouteflika's rule. However, protests continue with some calling for an overthrow of the entire Algerian power structure. Joining us today to help us better understand the situation in Algeria is Professor William Lawrence. He has taught at Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, Tufts, Mohammed V, and Qadi Ayad in Marrakesh, in addition to being a professor of international affairs and political science at GW. Professor Lawrence wrote his dissertation, and in the process, he interviewed 1,350 young Algerians. When his dissertation started to come to life, in the Arab Spring, he dove back into research for that. Welcome to the program, Professor Lawrence. Thank you. President Bouteflika was in power for 20 years, but had rarely been seen since his 2013 stroke. Can you give us a brief idea of what circumstances converged that led to his sudden ouster? So, first of all, he had served in the original post-independence Algerian government all the way back to 1961-62 as the youngest minister in that government. He'd been brought back in 1999 as Algeria emerged from a 10-year civil war and was a consensus candidate for the regime to make peace with the Islamists and to turn the page on the violence of the 1990s. He suffered a debilitating stroke in 2014 just before the presidential election and didn't give one speech in the presidential election. But because the election was going on, everyone felt bad for him and people voted for him for the same reasons they'd been voting for him every five years since 1999. There's a sort of reconciliation, post-war conciliation presidents. But over the years, he did not get better. And as a variety of things started to degrade in Algeria, by the time we got around to the announcement of his next presidential campaign in 2019, Algerians, including a lot of young people, had had enough and they revolted. Following up on that, you've conducted research on the nexus of youth and political movements in North Africa. So I was wondering what impact the relative youth of Algeria's population has had on their tactics and also the desires they have to change the regime. It's a big part of it. I would say in comparison to the Arab Spring protests in Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya, for example, the demographic of these Algerian protests this year is actually a little bit older because everybody is pissed off. It's not that all the young people aren't out in the millions. It's that the older generations are out too, including 80-year-old men and women who participated in the liberation struggle who've been joining the protests and jailed and other things going on. So it's really a, an interesting demographic. But in terms of the youth component, it's large, it's important, it's very social media driven, even when the internet gets shut down at various times. I think 
The most astounding thing for watchers of Algeria has been the creativity of the protesters, using a lot of Western themes like game over and slogans and images and memes that are very much attuned to sort of global youth revolt. And that's been a big endearing part of this protest and one of the reasons it's been sustained well over six months and is predicted by most analysts to continue. That's really interesting. So you mentioned the kind of old guard from the War of Independence being involved. What kind of boon did they provide to the protesters when they showed their support? It was a a big moral victory. I mean, obviously, to whatever degree these are generational protests, when the older generation gets convinced and turns out, you've succeeded. I mean, that's part of your goal. So Algeria is different from a lot of other North African countries in a number of ways, including the sort of history of revolution. And the revolution of 54-61 imbues all aspects of Algerian life. And so in many ways, Algeria since 54, Algeria of the 90s, and Algeria today is a lot about refighting that revolution and capturing sort of control of that revolutionary narrative. And so that cooperation between the olders and the youngers in this revolt and that revolutionary spirit, which is a central part of even mainstream political culture, mm-hmm. has very much made this protest interesting to watch because whoever sort of wins the public favor and the international favor in terms of those that are best articulating the views of the original revolution win the rhetorical, the symbolic debate. And obviously there's a sort of street-level practical part of who's controlling the streets and public buildings and that sort of thing. But the debate over narratives is a big part of this. About the Civil War in the 90s, that was kind of preventive by the military to essentially stop the Islamic salvation from winning possible elections. Are there fears about something like that happening again and the military stepping in to halt elections? Yes, but it's very generationally divided. So the over 50s, including international analysts, tend to be very fearful of that, but the under 50s aren't. And that's very much what I call the Arab Spring ethos, which has been very much about inclusivity and everyone having a seat at the table. So whether it's research that I've done in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, and elsewhere, a lot of times the arguments between the younger and older generation are about who gets a seat at the table. It's been particularly interesting in the neighboring countries as well as in Algeria, the way in which Islamists and LGBT activists have been sort of defending each other's rights to be part of the conversation. Whereas the older generation tends to want to exclude both the Islamists and the LGBTs, you know. In some ways, they're kind of looking out for each other's interests. And that goes against the conventional wisdom about what Islamism is all about, because there's a younger generation there too, which is more inclusive in many ways than the older generation. So, so far there have mainly been cosmetic changes made to the cabinet and the upper echelons of power, and the protests are still continuing. So does the military and those in power, do they think they can outlast or co-opt the protesters? Yes and yes. I think the best comparison is Sudan, because it's happening right now and the two are influencing each other in a number of ways. And while I've been highly critical in the media of the defects in the Sudan agreement, the Sudanese protesters and military are way ahead of the Algerians. And the Algerians are making mistakes the Sudanese regime and protesters didn't make. 
And increasingly, just this month, the Algerian actually demands of the opposition are looking more and more like the Sudanese demands, you know, about a transitional period and all that. But I think one of the main differences to point out is that the Sudanese regime has realized that they have to accommodate some kind of systemic change. And the Sudanese protesters have figured out that even the military guys that killed some of the protesters are going to be in with some level of immunity for a certain period of time. And that's that sort of inclusive, you know, transitional eureka moment that you have to have to start democratic transitions. Now, Sudan could derail in a number of ways, but you could say that Algeria has already derailed several times. And that's because the military leader who did what I've been calling a soft coup and that's what it is so far, is making many mistakes, including thinking he can decide who comes to the meeting to represent the opposition and who can't. And even in the last couple of days, he's been saying that if certain opposition leaders don't come to the table, he's going to expose all of their deep, dark secrets and discredit them. That's not a way to get someone to the table to negotiate the country's future. And so that's two examples of how the Algerian military folks in charge are going about it all wrong. You mentioned the ongoing dialogue not going particularly well so far between the military and the protesters. What channels do they have to communicate and how have those been proceeding so negatively? Well, something that's unique to Algeria is because of the rejection of international interference, which is so imbued in Algerian political culture in a radical way. Some protest slogans have been about U.S. stay out, France stay out, blah, 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 and the military saying the same thing. So they've, to some degree, eliminated the international, I mean, often situations it's the international view, the international opinion, the international analysis that helps trigger or shame the country into doing the right thing. Well, the Algerians have almost taken that off the table on both sides of this, which kind of isolates the protesters and deprives them a little bit of international solidarity. But that said, the main game right now is that the government, just for the last couple of weeks, is preventing the opposition from even meeting, Okay, is preventing protesters from being a part of a dialogue run by a gentleman who's been designated to run the dialogue that most people are boycotting having a conversation with because the Algerian military has decided that they have to follow the constitution, a constitution that most protesters believe is flawed and shouldn't be the basis of the dialogue going forward. That's why Sudan, for example, had a constitutional declaration. That's why Tunisia and Libya, which on different trajectories after their revolutions had a constitutional declaration to justify the transitional government's existence and then taking actions to sort of have a transition. That didn't happen in Algeria. They're trying to stick to the old constitution and decide who gets to sit at the table and the majority don't get to. And that is prone to massive failure, including that the protesters managed to stop presidential elections on July 4th. And the regime now again calling for presidential elections on exactly the same basis, and that's not going to happen. The protesters have a lot of issues, but just to give you a flavor of it, they're really concerned about zombie voters because they say that there's millions of people on the voting rolls who are dead or don't live in Algeria, and the government sort of votes on their behalf. You know, And so you would, among other things, need a massive change to the electoral laws, electoral rolls, and the voting to have an election that the public would accept, and none of that's even being discussed by the regime. And then there are deeper constitutional and systemic issues that also aren't being addressed. 
So since there's been such a gulf about when or if elections will take place, what do you see being the most likely date maybe for elections? And then also who would be some of the major players that would be involved? I don't think there could be elections before 2020. According to some of the opposition plans being floated now, it'd be 21 or 22, that there'd be a one or two or even longer transitional period without elections, which is the road Sudan's going down, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's a certain way to go about this. The main players keep changing. There's been some interesting data recently from Brooke Brookings sort of looking through Facebook polling at the top presidential candidates. They sort of looked at 20 candidates. And that's the only sort of snapshot we have. And the general way to view things is the more you either represent or have dealt with the government, the more tainted you are. And the people who are doing best also in the Tunisian presidential elections coming from September are those who don't have taint, you know, rather than anything special about their policy viewpoints, you know, or their experience. It's more about whether they're seen to have been co-opted at some point. Because getting back to one of your previous questions, the main game with the Algerian regime is co-optation and coercion. And the opposition now, buoyed by the protesters, doesn't want to seem to be co-opted or coerced. And that's making presidential elections impossible right now. So in 2011, when the rest of the Arab Spring was going on, there were not as large scale of protests in Algeria. Could you give us some reasons as to why that was? One of the main variables in analysis of the Arab Spring and political transition in general is what regimes do. It's probably the most important variable. And when regimes make martyrs, they motivate protesters. And the Moroccans and Algerians in particular in North Africa and in the MENA region have been working very hard to have no martyrs. So we had situations in January and February of 2011 in Algeria where we had 5,000 protesters show up and 30,000 police to make sure that nothing went wrong, almost policing each other to some degree. And that was happening a lot in the 2019 protests, too, where sort of security forces were keeping an eye on security forces, no martyrs. The only person who died in the early months was someone of a heart attack. And even that, they tried to make a cause celebre. There was another protest in the January-February time frame of 2011 where there were, I believe, over 300 police injuries and no protester deaths. When you have 300 police injuries and no protester deaths, you have a police force that's restraining itself, particularly given the 200,000 or so that were killed in the 1990s by the same police. You have security forces that are trying really hard not to make mortars and to cause much greater instability and a push towards total regime change. Did the petrochemical wealth of Algeria, did that also have a role in not having as significant a protest during the Arab Spring? Yes. Again, to oversimplify, the Algerian regime throws money at problems and interest groups uh, in a way that is actually preferred to some degree by a lot of Algerian interest groups. So, for example, there were a whole bunch of salary raises, subsidies being put back on, concessions to labor groups, concessions to students. Algeria in a typical year has over 11,000 protests. These have been studied by some researchers, and a lot of them are like housing protests or whatever, yeah, health care protests, a lot of micro, micro level, you know, 20 people out protesting this. And the Algerian government typically, maybe even 50% of the time, will throw some money at it. And that's what the expectation 
of the crowd is. And so we've gotten to a point in Algeria, and maybe this can be part of a conclusion, where politics doesn't work because people don't go to their elected representatives who exist to ask the government to do anything. They simply go out in the street, the regime puts out their security forces, and that's where the dialogue happens that leads to the policy change, and that's what rich hydrocarbon distributive states can do. And what it does is it disqualifies the parliament, disqualifies the parties, and makes them even weaker than they already are. And so when people come in and say, well, you know, you've got to beef up your parliament and your political parties solve the problem. Well, that won't have an impact if street to regime doesn't remain the main game. And right now that's even more the game than before. Earlier you had mentioned social media playing a role in the protests. Has there been any role played by the diaspora in France? Have they been able to use social media to connect with friends and relatives back home? Yes. And this has been going on since about the 2001 protests, which I studied for my dissertation, where tactics, slogans, strategies, frameworks, all of that's discussed with the diaspora for many reasons, including that the diaspora has resources, sometimes time on their hands, and experiences of protests in European contexts, you know, and other contexts, because there's obviously diaspora beyond France, that are useful, which brings up another important point when you study protests, which is that protesters are constantly learning from other contexts, and so are regimes. And so it, it creates a kind of cat and mouse, Tom and Jerry thing, where you're constantly adapting your strategies to the adapting strategies of the other side. And that is very much informed by observations and debates on social media. Thank you so much, Professor Lawrence, for appearing on the show. It's been a pleasure. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Terry Algano. And thank you for tuning in to this month's episode.